BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast. Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Kell. Hip-hop journalism on the highest level. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy Joel Ortiz. And I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast. Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einenko. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You're my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations. And I appreciate them all. Yeah, well. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ice-T. I want you to do something for me. Make sure you download and subscribe Library Rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It is old fucking official. Alright? Stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It's cold. Because is the my next guests write about hip-hop history and are very much part of hip-hop and living hip-hop history. They are two DJs, college professors, journalists, activists, authors, and have released their new book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Young Adult Edition. Jeff Chang and Davey, Dave, Davey D. Cook, it's an honor to have you on Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Gill. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yes. So, you know, I, I know this is this kind of is always this like constant conversation. I was listening to you also guys, a few interviews you guys did, and there's always this conversation about how the importance of people that are within hip hop culture to tell the story of hip hop culture, because it will give a more accurate depiction of the history of hip hop. But so one, why is this important? But two, is there ever a moment that... You could be too deep into hip hop culture that you might be a little blindsided by some of the history. I don't think us as writers, Jeff and myself, um, even if we were to romanticize about the history, and I don't think we do instinctively, but if we did, we certainly wouldn't do it in a book. Um, we have uh, peers that we're going to be accountable to. And we're not elders in the, in, in the history, meaning that we have people that have come before us that would definitely check a lot of things that we would either leave out or romanticize. I mean, they do that now with the book. Um, and right. we certainly don't want to have it happen on something that would be um, egregious. So, yeah, some people would get too deep into it, but... I mean, you know, that's barbershop talk, not a book. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, we, we, um, Dave has been, I think, one of the best um, hip hop journalists, hip hop historians that, that the culture has known. And, you know, he holds himself up to really, really high standards. And, you know, the, the piece about us kind of um, trying to do this for a new generation was, was really to be able to kind of say, hey, you know, we want to be able to leave something for folks now. What this is, you know, what fourth, the fourth generation of kids probably coming in or more, you know, like it depends on how you want to count it. But we're talking about our kids, uh, the kids uh, two who are younger than even our kids, uh, coming up behind that. So we wanted to leave something for, for, for folks, um, and give them an, an accounting of where hip hop came from 
and um, and they can decide kind of where it's going to go. But you know, around the piece about romanticizing it, you know, the uh, I think in the beginning when Can't Stop Won't Stop first came out in the mid two thousands, we got a lot of, you know I got a lot of uh, criticism, you know, and the kind of approach that me and Dave both kind of took to to things. Dave has been the person who's always influenced me is that you can't separate the politics from the culture. And that, you know, back then people were like, oh, you're just trying to make this, you know, just be about whatever. You know, it's not like you're trying to take it away from the music. Well, the music comes from somewhere. And they were trying to say, well, you're almost like romanticizing it because you're trying to make it seem as if, you know, like nobody but young black kids, you know, um, poor black kids, uh, we're doing this at the beginning. And I'm like, well, like, <laughs> check the record, you know? Uh, and so people were accusing us back then of romanticizing things or being too narrow about it and blah, 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 blah. Um, we're just like, check the record, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's the kind of truth telling piece that only can come from folks who have really, you know, been in the culture and studied it, paid their dues in it and that kind of thing. We can also talk too about my position coming from, you know, uh, not coming from the Bronx, coming from an island in the middle of Pacific, being of Chinese and native Hawaiian descent and all that kind of thing. But I think that, you know, being from within, you know, allowed us to be able to, to be more accurate. And also like Dave said, you know, just to, have those standards like we're checked we're accountable we have communities that we we have to go back to whereas a lot of the folks who you know have been writing about hip-hop before not a lot but you know a fair amount of of folks you know did not necessarily have to to check we certainly got we've been checked over the years i've been checked over the years um i've had to come correct with it and i think that that creates an honesty a level of clarity that um, folks might not have if they're, you know, whatever, doing this for a mainstream media. What we're dealing with is America romanticizes history. And America is um, so deep into its fantasy that it, it, it becomes disturbed when real history comes across. And so I'm just remembering um, that some of the biggest criticisms that Jeff got when he first did Can't Stop, Won't Stop were from people that just couldn't recognize the humanity of folks who were poor and whose voices had been excluded from the mainstream narrative. And so, you know, you get this thing with hip hop where it's like, oh, we all were together. In the Bronx. I was in the Bronx at that time. No, we weren't all together. You know, it wasn't white kids hanging out with us in the Soundview section. It wasn't in the South Bronx like that. It was, you know, it was it was black kids and then later Puerto Rican kids. And it was people who were mostly poor who were ridiculed and marginalized for doing this thing that, you know, eventually becomes a billion dollar a year industry. So when you start to rise up and tell your story, oftentimes it, it moves to the side certain myth. And, uh, and that becomes problematic, especially if you made money off those myths. So, you know, I often have people tell me, oh, yeah, we were all there together. And you got to go, well, how old are you? You know, and they give you an age. And then you go, so that means in 1975, you were 10 years old. And so let's walk through this thing. So where did you live? You lived down in Manhattan because you didn't live in the Bronx. You lived in Manhattan. So at 10 years old, you got on a train, the number six train, by yourself. And if it was on the weekend, it was a local train. And you took that train all the way through Harlem into the Bronx. And then you got off on what street? Elder Avenue, Whitlock. You know, you start naming them. And you mm-hmm. got off which street and then you walked seven, eight, nine blocks by yourself to get to Bronx River Houses. 
you know, once you start breaking it down like that, then people go, well, you know, it wasn't maybe, maybe it was 1980 when everything was opened up and you were older. It's important to be able to break this down because if you don't, people will rewrite the history and leave you out and discount a lot of your innovativeness. And so, um, yeah, we don't romanticize it. I think America romanticizes history, not just with hip hop, but with damn near everything. We're in that moment right now, mm-hmm. you know, with them not wanting to uh, deal with critical race theory or, you know, which is which is a misnomer in itself because that's not really history. That's a whole legal thing. But that's even a distortion. That really means we don't want you talking about history that's going to make us feel uncomfortable. And uncomfortable means having an accurate depiction of how this country was founded and who the heroes and sheroes were and trying to obtain freedom for people who are oppressed. Hmm. Right. And, and, and that's you know one of the reasons why I started this podcast and uh, started working on the radio show with Ch- uh, Chuck D is because I mean, I, I grew up in Washington Heights and I went to school in East Harlem and, you know, at 10 years old, I know self-destruction was out, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew it was important. I didn't know exactly why it was important at the time because I'm this 10-year-old kid who was listening to it. I knew I could recite all the lyrics to it if I needed to. Uh, but I wasn't going to say I'm just, like, I wasn't there and I wasn't, I'm not this expert in uh, exactly what was happening at the time and why it was happening at the time, uh, which is why, of course, I appreciate books like what you guys have written and and. and you to yourself in terms of you know breaking down the history and and doing it from a uh, a real point of view and not this uh, either romanticized point of view or something that's kind of trying to change history uh, or the t- truth about American history so to say um, when w- you know this is a you know 2005 was when I, Jeff your book uh, Can't Stop Won't uh, Stop came out and now this is the uh, the Young Adult edition what, when was that conversation when did that happen between Dave and yourself and you know what was the conversation that we should have a, a young adult edition of uh, Can't Stop Won't Stop all credit goes to Monique um, Patterson who uh, was my editor for the original Can't Stop Won't Stop and came back to me oh, I don't know maybe uh, I can't remember exactly when but um, a few years back at least and was like hey you know it's time um can't stop one stop has kind of had this good life and it's time to to make it available to to younger folks and i got really excited about that and i got really excited for two reasons one is is because i felt like wow you know she's right uh, we do you know need to kind of make this story available and known um to these younger folks and secondly because i thought oh wow actually this is the opportunity that i'd be able to have to be able to work with somebody who i've i've seen as a mentor um um somebody who i've looked up to for so many years who i've learned so much about and somebody who um you know we just share a lot of deep history together Our, our friendship goes back a really really long time and so I reached out to Dave and luckily Dave said, yeah, let's get down and do this. And so we, we got, we set about doing that about two, three years ago. I'd say Dave, I can't, I can't even really put a date on it right now, but yeah. Uh, and, and it was, it was dope. It, it ended up being so much more than uh, I was, I was hoping for. Uh, you know, uh, both can't stop one stops. Uh, you know, the, the intro is, uh, you know, legendary cool arc, mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, very, very, you know, very similar intros. Uh, and but one, one thing that stood out to me was in this sentence, uh, quote, the hip hop generation and the sentence is, but the hip hop generation is not making the best use of the recognition. And uh, in the new version, uh, Kirk replaces the pronoun uh, hip hop, gener- uh, hip hop generation with the pronoun now we. Uh, and it seems like maybe Herc or is, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but, and his peers are maybe taking quote unquote more responsibility for the continued development of hip hop, uh, as opposed to just being us versus them, old school versus new school. Uh, what was the, was there a reason or what was the reasoning behind changing this pronoun to we? I, you know, I, I think that's it. I think, I think it's, you know, you time, time moves on and you kind of see how everything uh, develops, you know. I think that when we were writing in 2000, the mid 2000s, early 2000s, you know, we were very much kind of in this mode of 
trying to, I was, I think certainly, um, and you know, maybe other folks were too, but for me, I'll say it like this, the, there was very much a, a thing of trying to basically say, Hey, this is what those of us who came of age after baby boomers went through and experienced in some ways, you know, the audience for the original can't stop, won't stop was older folks, you know, the elders that we had gotten into fights with all the time, um, about, culture about politics who is who are going around talking about like hip-hop is everything that's reactionary you know and trying to uh say that we could never um achieve what they had achieved and you know maybe sometimes doing it like very much to to kind of put us on the spot and sometimes maybe doing it you know unintentionally but still you know the sort of response to the call out that baby boomers uh, folks who had come of age during the civil rights and the black power movement were issuing to us. And as we get older, obviously like a lot of that has, has dissipated. It's gone away. It was always a false dichotomy, but I think that, you know, it, it's become clearer, you know, the different types of roles that we all uh, kind of take on, but also that we need to have a kind of sense of unity in really fighting, you know, the real enemies out there. And so I think generationally for me anyways, you know, it's, we're stepping now into sort of our, our young elder status. <laughs> and as Dave said before, you know, we still have the elders that we're looking up to, you know, um, but we're united and together and in, in trying to figure out how to pass on the lessons really of the last, you know, half century and more onto the next generation. So maybe that's reflective as well. And, and what her is, is saying in the introduction. I think, uh, you know, for a lot of uh, people that listen to rap music, uh, the, the the rap element is the kind of the representation of hip hop culture for them. Um, but, you know, this this book and these two books have looked at the kind of hip hop from a political and social justice end and how hip hop has been kind of at the forefront of helping these push these conversations forward with what it feels like non quote unquote political rap dominating the mainstream uh, can you guys just define what hip hop is here and how has it been at the forefront of pushing these, these issues? Well, I mean, you know, again, we have to contextualize um, things in a way that we're very clear that there's a business culture and then there's culture that comes from different communities and business culture sometimes becomes the conduit in which we see other people's culture. And, and, and in doing so, we wind up with false narratives, meaning that if I don't know about Asian folks, I'm going to know about Asian folks because I watch TV. It may be the news. It may be a video. It may be a television show like Fresh Off the Boat. And then I'm going to, because America socializes us to believe that what we see on TV especially if it has a lot of money behind it is accurate i may be, you know i may start to believe that the asians in this country are as they are shown on tv you know that has been the challenge that black people have had to deal with people knew black people through minstrel shows have known us through stereotypes and newspaper comics and uh and articles and have known us through you know music and everything else but it's the uh, institution that was presenting us that became the way that people were able to know who we were. And that's and, and most of that is very, very uh, uh, narrow in scope and oftentimes just plain out false. So hip hop's the same way. If you see hip hop as what Hot 97 or Power 106 or KML or any of these big corporate owned stations presents, then you're missing the boat. And you're also making an assumption that hip hop is being directed by those institutions, which they're not. There are, there are, definitely, there are definitely entities that are successful and will um, engage them, but there's also a lot of other instances where there isn't. So let me give you an example. One of the biggest festivals here in the Bay Area is Hyro Day by you know the hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. They'll get 50,000, 60,000 people showing up to their event. 
They're not on the radio. How does that happen? They don't do advertisement on the radio. How does that happen? The local hip hop station will throw a concert with a particular artist and can't even sell it out. You know, a venue that has 1,500 people. Why does that happen? You're, you're giving it all the bells and whistles, but why can't you sell it out? Now, on the surface, you would go, well, I'm hearing about this artist day in and day out that's on the radio, so they must be more popular. No, Hyro's more popular. You get an artist like Michael Franny. He was bringing out 60, 70, sometimes 100,000 people to Golden Gate Park. Somebody in New York would go, I never heard of Michael Franny, so therefore he might not be that popular. It's not my fault that you haven't heard of him. You know, I just know he had 100,000 people in Golden Gate Park to come see him do his thing and everybody singing along to his songs. And so we can start to pull out lots and lots of examples. You're working at Rap Station. Public Enemy has been around the world 35 times. There are people in my class, my hip hop class, that never heard of Public Enemy. Does it mean that they're not popular? They just did a show in Columbia two years ago, 100,000 people. So obviously people know who they are. And so it's up to us to kind of shift the narrative away from business, the business lens or the corporate lens, and to come back to a lens that represents us and not really even get, I don't even get caught up in the debate anymore about what radio is doing. I mean, it's there. It's a part of, you know, it's a part of our lives, but it's not the only story. And I think more and more people are, are aware of that. I mean, very few people that I've come across, and I'm sure Jeff has the same thing, is looking at this book and going, hey, you know, I heard on the radio these things. How come that's not in the book? It's like, nah, because they know that it goes a lot deeper than that. And, you know, radio is is just this medium that, I think is uh, increasingly out of favor with the majority of people. Right. But I think the the issue is also that now we're at this, you know, we're at this uh, point and you guys talk about in the book about streaming numbers and stuff like that. But, you know, at this point where it's the numbers of YouTube followers that make a difference. Right. I mean, that that that's why hip hop artists felt like I saw a headline. I didn't even know it was a big deal that Eminem just signed some artists that had less than 20,000 subscribers. Sure. That's a big, you know, that's apparently a big deal because it's not a hundred thousand subscribers. So I, mean, I, I just wonder if, if, if this could continually, uh, I guess, commercializing this type of commercialization of, of, of rap music um, is, do you guys see it in the long term helping hip hop culture or is it, giving another kind of, I know, long-term, I guess, obstacle for uh, hip-hop culture to kind of overcome because they have to fight against this part of it. I don't think hip-hop is fighting against it. I think hip-hop, I think Cardi B is just as relevant as Locksmith, right? Um, You know, Locksmith is just as relevant as Lil Durk, and Lil Durk is just as relevant as Mozzie. Right. Some of these people you may know, some of these people you may not know. Um, Many of them are regional heroes. Many of them have figured out in this current landscape how to garner committed followers that will support and buy their material and go to their shows. Sometimes they'll use social media, uh, which they control. Other times they they find other ways in which to do it. And so, uh, you know, once upon a time when getting on the radio was the pinnacle of success because we never had that opportunity. The arguments that you're raising may have, I mean, you know, may have been a little bit more germane, but I think now it's like, look, I'm not trying to go that route. It's first of all, it costs money to have your stuff on the radio. I don't want to pay, you know, all this money and payola and favors and free concerts and do all that. It's not worth it at the end of the day. I don't want to have it recouped if I'm signed to a major label and they're like, hey, you know, you owe us a million dollars before we get your first, you know, royalties because they had to pay off, you know, company X, Y and Z to play the music. It's not worth it anymore. So people have figured out how to go directly to their fan base and build, you know, culture around that. Some may be a little bit more known than others, but at this point in time, I think it's opened things up to one, people being able to be more creative, two, people being able to really service 
their followers and their fan base. And three, you know, actually have a lot more opportunity than they have once once upon a time. So I'd rather have 20,000 subscribers who are really subscribers who really like what I do than to have a million people who are actually fans of a radio station and the artist is just interchangeable. You know, those days are over. And so, you know, both can coexist at this point in time. You know, the, uh, the hip hop at the new millennium chapter, uh, I, I, I appreciate that you guys take us on this journey across the United States, uh, stopping at regions, mentioning artists that help define these, uh, these particular regions, you know, the roots in Philly, rhyme stairs in Minneapolis, bone dogs in Cleveland, Nelly in St. Louis, Dylan, Detroit, et cetera. What was the importance for you guys to kind of take the reader on this, this journey uh, to tell each story of each region of each region? I mean, it, it goes back to what Chuck says, right. You know? Uh, talking about hip hop as this network before we had, you know, all the social media that we've got and the way for people to be able to let each other know what was going on in each of the cities. And it's always been that. Um, And in that regard, you know, we wanted to do justice to, you know, the way that hip hop has spread and taken root and really lifted up the character of the black communities and other communities of color, uh, but particularly the black communities in each of these different types of cities. It's something where there's no way that we could have covered everything. And so there's going to be omissions that people will point out to us and some already have, but what we wanted it to be was really uh, a primer on how to understand hip hop, right? How folks should understand what this looks like. You know, once it gets to YouTube, in some ways it gets, hip hop gets deracinated, it gets decontextualized. You might start doing this dance that came out of a particular neighborhood in St. Louis, not realizing that it's a St. Louis dance. And then it gets on, it gets on whatever national, you know, TV, or it starts, you know, going viral or that kind of thing. And suddenly people don't know what the context of it is. But if you're really paying attention, then you're actually learning a lot about what's going on in St. Louis as you see people doing the movement that they do. Same thing like with Turf Dance in the Bay and so on and so forth. We talk about all, you know, all the kinds of ways that folks are moving, <laughs> grooving uh, in different cities. And so that was just one way for us to be able to kind of uh, make those connections, give young people like kind of incept, if you will, into their minds a little bit of a way to interpret hip hop, give them the analytical tool to to be able to say, yo, if I really want to understand the deeper structure of what's going on here, like it's all right there in front of me. I mean, I love to say that hip hop taught me everything that I need to know about everything. And it's not just about, you know, the the importance of different types of incidents that might have happened in different types of cities, right? And what that means, whether that be whatever, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson or, you know, killing of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. It's also taught me about how to think. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do all these different types of things at the same time. The the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, you started off by romanticizing. So the romanticizing says... Hip hop started in New York, and then everybody was sitting around twiddling their thumbs in different <laughs> cities around the United States, <laughs> waiting for, waiting to be enlightened by this this culture that existed. And what we know is that there was a scene in the Bay, there was a scene in Chicago, there was a music and dance scene in every single city around around the United States, and. And again, if you look at it from the black perspective, and I'm emphasizing it, the black perspective, if you come to, say, a place like Oakland, when hip hop shows up, people in Oakland aren't going, oh, wow, now we know what to do. What they did was they said, oh, that rap stuff, that's kind of like what my uncle does when he when he's rhyming like Dolomite. They had a referencing point. They had already seen that expression just under another name. Oh, that dance? 
I like that dance. I'm going to incorporate it into dances that we are already doing and we already have a vibrant culture around. Same thing in L.A., same thing in New Orleans. You know, each of these cities took bits and pieces of hip hop out of New York, added it to what they were already doing. And, you know, and, and you had these vibrant expressions that had a regional twist to it. That is a continuum of how black music and black dance and black expression has always existed. That's why you had a Kansas City blues and a New Orleans blues and an Oakland blues and a, you know, and a Chicago blues, even though you might say blues came from the Mississippi Delta. But by the time it spreads around, it has all these different flavors because people added their own current expression to something that, you know, that 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 had some lift. And um, and and so we recognize that. And I think most of the time the narratives excluded everybody. And we understand now in 2021, people are like, what's the Oakland history? Not just the Oakland history and hip hop, but understanding what was Oakland's history before hip hop? What's the Chicago history? You know, uh, what was the history before hip hop? And when we look at it from the lens and understand about these scenes, and I'll close with this. You know that the same time hip hop is emerging in New York, go-go is going on in D.C. And house is going on in Chicago. And the funk movements are going on in Oakland and in L.A. And, you know, pick a city and they already had a movement. And so we wanted to kind of give a baton to people in those other areas to say we recognize that you all had a scene that, you know, eventually intersects with hip hop out of New York. Tell, fill in the gaps and tell your own history. We're going to give people just a little taste and hopefully somebody picks up the baton and goes, here's the full Chicago history. Here's the full Seattle history. And that's starting to happen. People are doing that now. And I know, I mean, this, this, he's, he's much later, but I think, I think what's, what's, what's awesome is that, uh, you, 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 you know, there's a lot of Jay, Jay, Jay Diller, right? Everyone, he's been getting a lot of last few years, especially, I think a lot of, a, few, a lot of talk and recognition of what he's done and what he's contributed to the culture. And, uh, one thing I really appreciate about Jay Diller is that, uh, I, when I interviewed, uh, Justin Bua a few years mm-hmm. back on his hip hop legends book, he yeah. had Dilla as one of his paintings. And the reason is because he didn't realize actually the impact Jay Dilla had on him and like, didn't realize that Jay Dilla was responsible for far side, mm-hmm. for Q- you know, all these common, mm-hmm. um, is, can you just talk about Dilla's, uh, and Detroit's, I think more so Im- impact on, on not just rap music, but also hip hop culture. And is it, uh, is it, I mean, are we, is it Jay Dilla fans living in a bubble or is it actually genuine, you know, that he had this incredible impact on everyone? Yeah. I, you know, Dilla is, I, you know, Dilla's, Dilla's real, right? Dilla's the, the genius of Dilla is real. I mean, you, you can hear Questlove, I think, talks about it the best in terms of trying to explain his musical genius and the kinds of things that he did. The sampler that just are mind boggling, you know, to kind of make these, make whole songs from piecing together a million different fragments, you know, like breaking it down to bits and bytes and reconstructing it into something uh, much more. It's monumental. It's really like he is like the guru kind of, of, uh, he's sort of the biggest, the deepest manifestation of hip hop. And I think sort of black musicians more generally facility for like being able to take technology and repurpose it in a way that nobody ever imagined, uh, to be able to do these magical things, (laughs) things that seem magical, right. That, that, um, again could not even have been imagined right i just i was looking uh i was watching a video the other day of aretha uh in concert and uh just at one point she just says okay um there's a guy that's playing piano in her band and she's like okay you know give it up for gary uh, i'm gonna take my turn at the piano and she just gets on the piano and it's like wow you know gary was good but aretha was heavenly right and that's how dilla was uh, on the sampler. And I think, so that's real, right? Just that, 
you can just get into the technical prowess of it. But the the piece I think that's lasting about Dilla and the thing that that I think everybody justly celebrates is that he understood the totality of of black music and was able to to weave it together in 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 ways that kind of express the 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 huge pure possibility of hip hop because you know a lot of times Dave and I will talk about how you know hip hop comes out of this musical moment in which James Brown is taking it back to Africa and Jimmy Castor is engaging with the salsettos you know that he's listening to right and like there's the meters you know in in New Orleans who are like messing around with calypso and reggae you know and you have all of these sounds coming together from across the diaspora in that moment and so hip hop is in that respect sonically you know that like if you listen to trap music you know the reason that trap sounds the way it does is because it has that southern type of feel and it it beckons to the caribbean um it beckons to the afro caribbean you know afro latino sound and so on and so forth right but dilla like seamlessly and sort of in a way that that like we're still going to be unpacking for years to come like did that right he was able to recombine jazz and samba and reggae and funk and soul and gospel and blue you know just go on and on and on in a way that was futuristic back then and that we're still like discovering now um and so everything that makes us like in a in you know in a club or in a car or in the room just like nod our heads um in affirmation as Saul Williams would say right um like Dilla understood immediately like how all of that stuff fit together and that's what he was that was what his life project was you know his life project was bringing bringing this vision of blackness to the world that could educate us all and and while Dilla has that genius there are people that i know young and old who don't know him couldn't care less because they have their own heroes and sheroes who speak to them through the drum and you know and again that's the beauty of hip hop and and sometimes that becomes the danger um, I have a guy that was with Grandmaster Flash's group, you know, his name is uh, Roosevelt, you know, Dynamite, right? So he was an MC and a DJ um, with the group. He just put up the 20 best producers of all time. He just did a list yesterday. Dill is not on there. And, you know, and I think only two people out of many said, what about Dill? He goes, he was all right. You know, I mean, and... You know, that wouldn't be the first time that people have said that. If I talk to people here, there are going to be some heads that go, I love Dilla. But then there's other people like, I love Studio Tone. I love Kyrie. You know, I love, you know, Aunt Banks. <laughs> you know, I love Dr. Dre. And they'll, they'll have a whole list of people because they're sonically, what they're doing in many ways is also similar to what Dilla is doing. I mean, they're taking bits and pieces of musical of music from the past and different genres and piecing it together and giving it something or they're actually playing instruments, you know, and and, and contextualizing that with hip hop. But more importantly, sonically, it's going to be pleasing to a particular group. I think I'm going to quote too short or paraphrase. He said, you know, there's different ways to look at funk. You know, back east, funk is built around the drum. James Brown. Out West, it's built around, you know, the thumping of the bass, Larry Graham. So both are funk, but one funk is going to be resonating really well with people out here. They're going to go, man, I like that. And it's going to get maybe just a lukewarm reaction on another part of the country where they're kind of like, yeah, this is cool, but it's not really my sound. Whereas, you know, something that is more drum, drum and percussion based and has like those uh, uh, polyrhythms and, you know, and a little bit of the influence from the Caribbean, that's going to be the thing that people go, now this I'm feeling, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And that's, that, and, 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 you know, and this is where the romanticizing comes in. The guy sitting in New York will romanticize 
about Jay Dilla or may romanticize about Primo or may romanticize about a New York sound and then totally discount, you know, uh, a state that has 40 million people and one out of eight people are from here who have a totally different perspective on sound. And, and an understanding of music and what makes you move and what makes you not move. There are quite a few groups that have come out of New York that had a West Coast sound that didn't break in New York. X-Clan being one of them, they broke out West because sonically, they, the language they spoke had an immediate resonant, you know, resonance here than it did back there and vice versa. So it's, it's the beauty of hip hop and we just have to be open to recognize that uh, not all things can be fit into a neat package and come under an umbrella. So Dill is dope. He's a great producer as far as I'm concerned, but I also recognize there are people that never heard of him, don't really care. He's not, there, he's not in their top 10 or 20. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. When we, there's always a conversation when, when we think about the internet, how, uh, you know, the, I think the grumpiness in some, in us and me, maybe <laughs> is that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hurting hip hop. It's hurting rap music. Right. And, 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 but you guys, you, but you, you have this great kind of, uh, few you know pages about and and Dave you talked about it earlier a little bit but you have this great explanation of actually how hip hop thrived uh, because of the internet and because of streaming services even though technically a lot of artists were making less money because they weren't getting the same sales that they might have been getting from the in the nineties when you had tapes and cassettes you know stuff like that um, can you talk about how this I guess streaming services and also the internet has allowed more artists of different backgrounds, you know, sexual orientation, races to kind of be, be, be I guess, thrive at, in, in front of the American culture and how, how that also has changed um, American culture and society and also has helped hip hop. Well, I mean, streaming is just another way in which to get the music to the people and the folks who start to put a value on to how many streams you have and don't have is an attempt to kind of corporatize that situation. The way that spins on a radio would determine who, who wins and who doesn't. I don't know if they're accurately counting things because many people aren't getting paid um, for all their streams. So are they undercounting or overcounting? Um, are things being inflated? You know, I know that you can buy um, views on YouTube. I, I know a bunch of artists that have bought views on YouTube. And, you know, it's impressive. You got a million views. But when you're the promoter of a concert, let's say Jeff has a million views on his YouTube channel and he's asking for $20,000 to come do a show. That's when we have a, a backroom conversation. I go, Jeff. You don't have a million views. Uh, you know, a million people ain't coming to this concert. So you're not getting $20,000. You're getting $10. And you're going to be the opening act because you bought most of those views. So when it comes down to actually seeing if you can move the crowd from point A to point B, that's going to be, you know, one way in which you can measure popularity. Are people aware of your song and are they moved by it to the next level? That's a little bit different than, you know, I got a million streams. At the same time, 
the music is accessible. I don't have to wait for an hour for my favorite song to come on. I can go on Spotify and listen to it immediately. And, uh, you know, a smart artist figures out how to use these current tools and get their product to the people. Uh, but you can't sit back and just be like, you know, I got a million views, so therefore I'm that person. You know, if I'm if I'm a promoter, I'm not paying you that money until I actually know that you can pack the house, you know, and you shouldn't you shouldn't believe your own hype, you know, either. And thinking I got a million views and that means what is that going to translate into more shows? Is that going to get you airplay on the radio station? And if you get airplay on the radio station, what is that going to mean? So I bring all this up because the music industry, which you keep going back to, a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. It's just an illusion. And I think with us, you know, we recognize the tools, but we also want to come back to things that are going to be that are going to have permanence in the community and that are going to really represent uh, real situations. For example, hip hop's engagement with political and social dynamics is a permanent thing. That's a real situation. How do you navigate poverty? How do you navigate systemic oppression? How do you navigate those challenges and your ability to do that will ultimately be a success story, more so than you being played on the radio uh, a million times or even having a million streams. One of the things we were trying to describe was the way that technology kind of helped to break back open the doors. Um, because there's this thing yeah. where, you know, hip hop, um, uh, and this is just to build on Davey's point, right? Like, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like water, right? It's kind of it's the it's the type of thing where folks try to dam it up, folks try to you know to 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 try to to milk what they can, harness its power and that kind of thing at different points, right? Try to make money off of it, and they put all these kinds of constraints on it, um, and that's the point that we were at in the in the you know mid two thousands to late two thousands where um, we were in this cycle where hip hop was really this golden goose that was just being like wrung out to try to get as many eggs as they possibly could out of the thing. Um, and they were trying to foreclose all these different ways that people were trying to be creative. So shutting down mixtapes, they were trying to go after everybody with, you know, intellectual property types of lawsuits. They were trying to do all these different types of situations to, really just kind of clamp it down. And then they were saying, we're going to play this, these four or five artists over and over and over again from coast to coast and around the world. And that's what you're going to get. That's what you're going to buy. Right. Um, and they were trying to shut off all these different ways for folks to actually get their stuff out to the marketplace because distributors were closing. Um, you know, you couldn't, it was very difficult at that particular point to actually try to manufacture your stuff because the, they're closing the record plants and the CD plants and all these other types of things. So, uh, but hip hop found its way. And it, what happened is, is it figured out how to commandeer the internet to talk about like what Dave was talking about, which was to develop direct relationships with, um, with the folks who really wanted it and needed it. Right. And that released all of these different types of artists in new kinds of ways. Um, so, so it's possible for us to say hip hop did that, right? Hip hop made SoundCloud, right? Hip hop made Spotify, right? Hip hop made, uh, Apple music, hip hop, literally, right. In all these cases, hip hop made all of these new streaming platforms possible. Hip hop made YouTube, um, in many ways, if you want to talk about the music side of things. So, so technology, like folks flipped it again and, and um, were able to kind of open up all of these different types of avenues. And that combined with this new sort of generation who was like, I'm not going to, we're not going to go back to the kind of old ways, right? We're going to express ourselves whatever, whatever we want to. That makes it possible for us to have like this and, and then millions of people in the streets, right? That makes it possible for for all of these new voices to kind of come to the fore. So you can have a Megan Thee Stallion, a Cardi B, a young MA, 
right? You can have all these different types of artists, um, Sarok, all these other folks like doing their thing and and going straight to the people and building building their their uh, their work and their audiences and building up hip hop in in a new a new kind of fashion. And so that's the kind of thing that we're trying to describe. I agree with Dave though. It's it's a type of thing where where you know we always got to be aware that that we've gone through these cycles and these periods in which big money wants to come in and commodify things and uh, and that's the tension between that we try to describe between the sort of corporate side uh, of the thing, the commodification of it, and the culture side of the thing, the community side of of hip hop. That's one of the things that we're trying to lay out in in the book. Right, and and I and I got from uh, that that last chapter with the uh, about streaming services and the internet, and, and you know, to your guys' point about you know, kind of breaking the doors down with uh, SoundCloud and 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 all and everything right. else is that it uh sorry it, it quickly like forced the conversation at hand to the American public about like a gay rapper or you know or you know or stuff like that so I, that's what I was trying to mean not not to keep it on the the music side but more like it kind of forced the hand of the American public to see that they could accepting a more I guess accepting them more quicker of different different um, sexual orientations and stuff like that hip-hop is built up on being innovative and part of the romanticizing and and I'll close with this is that people don't want to recognize the genius of people who they feel can't be genius and can't be innovative. That's been the problem. So uh, Jeff named off all the things that were kind of powered by this culture. You know, let's take this streaming service and flip it on its ear and do something that it wasn't intended to do. But now everybody goes, this is profitable. And you see this happen over and over and over again. The genius of hip hop right now is that the mindset of people is that they moved away from saying we have to be a national entity. In the Bay Area, people's like, I don't need to be national. Let me be international. That's lessons that they learned from Chuck. That's something that they saw Living Legends. That's something they saw Hyro and Black Alicia's and other groups do. Michael Franny's like, we're not limited to just going to New York and and, 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 and and having the ring be kissed there. We can do it other way. I, I remember E-40 and other people talking about, you know, we have trade routes. You know, their hot spots is Kansas City and Boise, Idaho and all these other things. It was called, you know, they were they, they were doing a practice that now corporations call hyper-local marketing. But they were doing it intuitively. It's like, I don't need to go to New York. I can go to Kansas City and make my money. I can go to Tempe, Arizona and make my money. I never have to go to the Bronx and try to, you know, please the funk master flex. You know, I could just go right here and do what I need to do and be adored by my fans. And so I think it's important just to understand that at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, folks who are making a way out of no way. And it only becomes a problem when people feel, uh, don't understand what they're doing and are stuck in a position or a mindset that I say hip hop is moved beyond. And I think right now what's exciting to me is that hip hop is moved beyond the traditions that people say garner success. It's not about being national, it's about being regional. You know, most of the people I know could care less if they're nationally known. Talk to somebody like a Rocky Rivera. It's like, I'm good with my Patreon. You know, talk to a Bamboo. He will pack a house. Talk to Hyro. They will pack the house, and they don't necessarily have a national audience. And to me, that's the beauty of it, because there's so much more we can dig in our own backyards than having to centralize everything where there's only room for a few. Um I have to bounce off here. I thank you very much uh, for the time and opportunity. Thank you so much. Okay. Je- I appreciate you. No thank doubt. You. Jeff, I'll talk to you in a bit. Okay, brother? All right, man. Take care. Okay. Peace. Peace. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. So I do. I, I do want to talk. You know, I recently interviewed uh, uh, Lyrics Born about the rise of Asian hate crimes in the United mm-hmm. States, uh, and his single that he uh, he released, "Anti." And I, you know, want to talk about the role that um, you saw hip hop playing when, uh, in terms of speaking out against uh, combating these crimes. Um, did they, in your view, or uh, did they? Did hip hop just come to bat right away, or did you, did you think it needed some convincing? Um, you know, I, I think that that hip hop, you know, allowed a lot of folks to be able to find their voice. Right. So, uh, you know, thinking about LB and the road that he's traveled, you know, to get to the, to, to this point where he and cut. So can put out something like anti and really kind of hold the standard for a lot of Asian American and Pacific Islander folks out there. I mean, I just think about hip hop and its role, of like giving Asian Americans a voice going all the way back to the 1980s. You know, back then me and LB were, were just youngins, you know, like I was on college (laughs) radio. He was like at, at Berkeley high, you know, kind of every weekend getting together with his homies or actually I shouldn't say every weekend. He was, he was in the lunch halls and all in classrooms and the hallways in between like wrapping his ass off. Right. Um, and he, but the thing about it is that he and I were not like anomalies. There was like millions of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who like found our voice through, through hip hop and we're learning kind of our way right through to discover more about our history and our kind of backgrounds and sort of what we had to say by looking up to people like Chuck and KRS, right? And, and light and Latifah and you know what I mean? All these folks and just even like getting down, you know, like with whatever, salt and pepper three times dope or whoever, right. You know, like that just gave us a way to kind of, to be right, to be comfortable, to see black folks comfortable in their own kinds of ways and words and swag and all of that. And, you know, for us to, to be able to be like, yeah, you know, we can, we can make a way, we don't have to live like second class. Um, you know, so I, I think about that and, and, you know, when you look at a lot of the activism, Asian American and Pacific Islander activism from that period, all the way up through now, um, even the groups that began organizing last year, 2020, right. As soon as, things started jumping off like February, March, even before we went into quarantine for COVID, like shit was happening. A lot of stuff was happening. Like the folks who are organizing out there who are organizing like groups for safety in the streets or people who are out there kind of organizing to talk about anti-Asian violence, like all of these folks, (laughs) a lot of them I knew through hip hop before I knew them you know what I mean? Like as like folks who are working on uh, on fighting uh, discrimination and and that kind of it was a natural type of thing. It was a natural con- you know sort of connection uh, for me uh, to to kind of see that. So so and I take it all the way back in that kind of way in in terms of looking at at the way that hip hop has empowered a lot of young Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, millions of us to be able to 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 find our way, find our voice and to be able to step up in this particular kind of moment, you know, um, I take the long view of it in that respect. Lyrics talked about how, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, when you heard Trump say China virus, you know, what'd you think? What'd you think? He was like, Oh, it was going to be shit was about to go down, you know, yeah. type stuff. And, you know, we, we, we talked in this interview about, uh, how, you know, kind of streaming services and that, you know, it has, has kind of helped hip hop thrive in a way. Doesn't matter 
does I don't know does it matter who the administration is in terms of like hip hop thriving? Not I mean I don't know about thriving is the right word, but you know like doesn't matter like Obama you know Obama was considered the first hip hop president, right? So what is what was Trump in terms of hip hop stepping up or thriving, and what is Biden mm. today? Well, I mean, I think I think no matter who's in charge, like hip hop has always kind of taken the position of being able to voice, you know, where young folks are at, um, and even those of us who are not so young anymore, right? Uh, so, so those of us who are like post young or whatever, <laughs> uh, pre old, whatever you want to call it, right? Like hip hop has been able to be that voice. So you know, during you know, we can go back to like, obviously the Reagan Bush years, you know, people like uh, Chuck are out there, like as the voice of young black power at the time, like people in the streets, people fighting apartheid, people on the campuses fighting uh, racism the same way that they're fighting it now. Right. You know, and then going up through the Clinton administration, you know, Clinton, Clinton was supposed to be the first black president and he's here, the one who's incarcerating so many young people of color. Um, or, you know, sort of presiding over that, that huge shift in public policy and hip hop stepping up as the, the voice of resistance against that, you know. And, you know, I, I was uh, the person who interviewed Obama for Vibe magazine as he was running for president. And then, you know, as he won and hip hop kind of sweeping him up into office. But even there, right, when with regards especially to immigrants in detention, uh, the beginning of family separation, um, and as well, like looking at all of the, of course, incidents that sparked the, the, this new kind of iteration of black power, the black lives matter movement, like just recognizing that, yeah, he was a black president. Yeah. A lot of hip hop folks came out, uh, to kind of pull, pull him in to office so he could become the first hip hop president. No doubt it was, it was hip hop and young folks that pushed him in that made the difference um, in terms of voting. And yet, you know, he, like still us out there, you know, being the, you know, the opposition, being the resistance, being the folks who are truth telling. And I think the same thing needs to happen now. And it is happening with Biden. So, you know, regardless of if it's somebody who's reactionary and, and in so many ways destructive like Trump and hip hop, really uh obviously like being a really powerful counterbalance to that you know to to uh to now even with this change right where you've got sort of a kinder face on in in power right the the sort of velvet uh that the knife is kind of is kind of hidden in hey you know hip-hop's going to tell the truth and i just i have no doubt that as you know, we pull into these coming years that, you know, hip hop will, will, will be speaking to uh, these questions of evictions. Hip hop will be talking about, you know, ongoing, you know, gentrification and displacement and resegregation. Hip hop will be speaking to what's happening with anti-Asian violence. Hip hop will be speaking to what's happening, you know, at the, at the border. Um, hip hop will be talking to all these different types of questions and, 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 and issues that's that's the role that hip-hop uh has always played and will continue to play okay jeff, jeff this is my final question uh thank you so much for your time on this um you know I, you, you the, the the new book can't stop won't stop young adult edition uh you know as i mentioned it starts with an introduction by dj cool hurt and then it ends with his speech at the yes. source awards uh and you you i think you can't help but but highlight that uh Cool heard is, you know, he's, 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 he's Jamaican. He's, he's, he's an immigrant. Going back to kind of what uh, Davey mentioned about, if you ask someone who Dilla is, they might not know. If a, two questions here, if, if a young adult asked you, why is Cool Herd so important? Well, one, what would you say? And then two, thinking about the story of the immigrant, how is the story of hip hop very much the story of the immigrant and his or her importance to the story of America? Well, I'll take the last question first. I mean, I think hip hop is a story of, the people, you know, and within the people are folks who have um, been forced out of, you know, their homelands uh, due to whether it be, you know, due to violence, let's put it that way, right? Due to war 
Herc and his family left during the 1960s because of the explosion of political violence uh, that was occurring and uh, or due to like the effects of colonialism, slavery, uh, all of these different types of questions and issues, people were, you know, forced to, to, to leave their homelands. Um, and, and so hip hop uh, is the story of those folks. Hip hop's the story of poor folks, poor folks who've been, you know, oppressed. Um, hip hop's also the story of uh, people who are aspiring to, to uh, do better. Right. And, uh, there's a very powerful aspirational aspect to to hip hop, and sometimes it gets confused and it becomes, you know, materialism. Um, but I think it's hip hop has always uh, been about these kinds of stories. That's why to to us, to people like Davy and me, it's the it's a greatest story ever told. It's it's a story of these kids who were abandoned, who were you know descendants of slaves, who were migrants or descendants of migrants uh, who were people uh, who ended up here and were left to their own devices. And they created this way of being able to give themselves voice and make themselves represented and to be able to transform their communities in ways nobody could have ever imagined. And that that has then become the the language and the blueprint for change all around the world is just it still boggles our minds, right? It's it's something that continues to be uh, one of the biggest things that that the the greatest gifts of you know of the uh, the African diaspora of, of Black folks to to all of us. So I, you know, that's that's the story that we're that we were we're we're trying to to kind of tell and to try to represent. And I think that you know as as we uh, get older, you know, our job really is to be able to continue to, to tell that, right. To, to say to young folks, all the tools, not just for your survival, but for your thriving are here. And people will make you think it's just entertainment. It's just sort of, you know, sort of lightness and that kind of thing. And it is, but it has a very serious type of thrust to it, right. That this is, uh, something that that ultimately really is, you know, gonna save us all if we give it a chance to do so. Jeff Chang and David Dave David D Cook are the author of Can't Won't Stop Won't Stop Young Adult Edition. Uh, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for being on Library Wrap, the Hip Hop Interviews with Tim Monaco. I, I uh, definitely appreciate it and greatly appreciate it. Tim, thank you so much for having us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.